know it doesn't feel like it today, but spring is very, very close. In fact, it starts this Thursday. It's hard to believe that it's it's coming up that soon when, as I don't know about you, but as I was sitting there when we were singing the songs and everything, I was hearing the sleep pelt against the, the windows, and, and I, I see the snow flying. It does not seem like it's almost springtime, but it is. And with spring comes spring cleaning. It's time when we go through and we begin to clean house. And... Uh, we kind of we kind of get some of that stuff, you know. We we open up the windows if our allergies don't get us down. We'll open up the windows here out the house and just clear out some of that clutter that's kind of built up over the long winter months. It's refreshing time, and today we're going to look at a time when Jesus cleaned house too. Now this was not a time whenever he got a feather duster or a vacuum, but rather he had a whip. And you maybe have never thought about Jesus actually having a whip, but he did have a whip and. Uh, he, he made it and he used it. It didn't involve clutter, but rather it involved uh, farm animals. And so what Jesus did, it, it's, it's, the picture that we're going to look at is, is a picture like we never ever think of him, like we never see him. We're going to be in John chapter 2, and we're going to pick up reading in verse 13 in just a moment. And I say this incident in Jesus' life gives us a glimpse of him like we don't ever think of him, because most of the time when we picture Jesus... We picture him kind of like this right here, don't we? Long hair, kind of, well, when, when you look at a lot of the pictures that we have, kind of feminine features, long robes. Um, somebody has surmised in, in a, a book that I read some years ago that in today's American church, oftentimes we basically picture Jesus like a woman with a beard. And when you think of it, that's kind of the way that many Christians think of him. But that wasn't the case at all. Jesus was a strong, courageous, masculine man. He was kind, but yet uh, he, he, he would attack evil where he saw it. He'd stick it to the, to the parish that be whenever they were doing wrong. He stood up for people when they were being shunned and mistreated by society, by the people in power. He, he, was, he was a man's man. And our, our text today really illustrates this, this point perfectly. And what we'll see in our text today is that Jesus was and is zealous for his father's house to be treated properly. And he wants nothing to deter the nations from coming to God and worshiping him. So if you would, why don't you stand as we read John chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 13 to 22. Now, this is very early on in his ministry, right after he's returned from, um, from the uh, wilderness temptation. He's gotten a couple of disciples. Performed the marriage at, or performed the marriage, performed the miracle at the marriage in Cana earlier in chapter 2, then verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen, and sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my, ha my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. 
So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed. Uh, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, the major theme, the overarching theme in this passage is that Jesus is zealous for the Father's glory. He's zealous for the Father's glory. Now, you say, well, I remember there's, there's something in our verses about him being zealous and zeal and things like that. Uh, but it doesn't say anything about the Father's glory. Well, if you look back at verse 17, that's, it, there's a, an Old Testament quotation from Psalm 69, I believe it is. But the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your, for your house will consume me. And, and his, the Father's house, the temple, was, was where people would exalt, where they would magnify, where they would, where they would glorify this glorious God. And so this is the motivation for Jesus' actions. What does it mean to be zealous? Well, zeal means a, a passion or a fervor. And the Greek word that's used there literally means to be hot or to, to boil up. It means to glow. And, and so that's what's, what's happening here. Jesus had a white-hot passion for the glory of God. And, and, and he, he was passionate that people would worship the Father. And so when, when people would go to the house of God to worship, and, and Jesus saw it desecrated, his passion was so strong it boiled up and moved him to action. And, and, and this is probably not what we think of when we think of Jesus. When we think of Jesus, we, we would probably imagine him going, Boy, that's no good. I really, guys, would you mind maybe moving that stuff out sometime? Isn't that what we do? Guys, I don't want to cause a fuss, but I, maybe if you could put it off over there. Maybe if you could, couldn't do that, just, just tone it down a little bit. But Jesus didn't do that. His passion was so strong, it moved him to action. He didn't just complain about it. That's another thing we do. Hey, you know what I saw at church today? I, let me tell you. That's not what Jesus did. He didn't, he didn't tweet about it. He didn't make an insightful blog post. He acted. Now, what was the big deal about what was happening? These people were distracting from God's glory. Now, the temple, uh, it, it was not just a single building. When we think of church, when we think of the house of God, we think of a single building just like, like we have. But the temple was a whole complex, a great, big, huge place. And, and kind of in the, in the center, there was the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God's presence was. And outside that, there was the Holy Place. That's where they'd make sacrifices, uh, you know, the bulls and oxen and stuff like that. Outside that, there was the court of the priests, the court of the Israelites, the court of the women. And on the very, very outer edge was what was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, these courts acted kind of like a funnel. You'd have, everybody could go to the court of the Gentiles and just kept getting fewer and fewer the closer you got to the Holy of Holies. Till by the time you got to the Holy of Holies, as you got closer to God's presence, the fewer people could be there. In fact, in the Holy of Holies, only one person could go in, and that was the high priest, and he could only go in one day, one day a year. So the court of the Gentiles was the farthest away that you could be and still be in the temple. That is where these cellars were set up. That's, where, that's the closest that non-Jews could come. It was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. And, and so it was in this, in this court of the Gentiles that the cellars had set up business. Now it mentions in, in our first verse, in verse uh, 13, it says that the Passover of the Jews was near. Now you probably uh, know a little bit about Passover. Passover is one of the three main uh, festivals, one of the three that every Jewish male was required to go to in the whole nation. 
And so, so sometimes millions of people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So we have all these people that have come in. And if you read in the book of, um, the book of Exodus where God institutes the Passover, he says that you should bring your own animal to sacrifice. And that wasn't a big deal when you lived close to the tabernacle. It's what it was then. But by this time, in Jesus' day, the Jews had been dispersed through all these different nations. And so it was very impractical to bring a lamb or to bring an ox for miles and miles and miles. On top of that, the, the, the animal that was offered had to be flawless. It couldn't, it couldn't be lame, couldn't be any of those things. And the priests had set up inspectors. And so you'd bring your own animal, and then they'd look it over and be like, oh, this isn't good enough. And so they wouldn't sacrifice it. So what they, what they began to do as a matter of convenience, and also to make money, is they would sell you animals right there. So if you were coming from a long distance, you didn't have to worry about you know, a sheep breaking its leg on the way and then ruining your sacrifice. You didn't have to worry about getting your animal there and then looking over and saying, sorry, you can't use it anyway. They were basically forcing people to do this. On top of that, when these Jews came, they had a tax that they had to pay as a half shekel. and this, That was an amount of money that they had to do. But the thing is, only one type of currency was allowed at the temple. But all the nations around there had their own money. So imagine this. You've got all these people coming from, from outside Jerusalem. They can't bring their own animal because there's no point. It's impractical. And they've got to get this money that they've got to give to the temple, but it's, it's not accepted there. So not only did they have sellers of animals set up, they had money changers there. Now basically what they do is they'd set their table, you would give them whatever currency you had, and they would exchange it for what was accepted at the temple. Just like if you went to Europe or something like that, you'd go and, and do your exchange. The thing is, they didn't do that for free. They would charge an arm and a leg to, to change this money out. In fact, okay, the tax was a half shekel. If you got back like a whole shekel, they would charge you to make it two halves instead of a whole. So that'd be like if you gave, went to Walmart and said, it gave them some amount of money and said, hey, would you give me my change back in two fives instead of a ten? Them taking part of that money for the trouble of giving you two fives. That's what they were doing. They, they, it was extortion. It, it, was all, it was all set up it's kind of like a convenience, but they were charging an arm and a leg. You ever been to Silver Dollar City? Or Disney World, Disneyland, something like that? Now you can go to you can go to the store, you can go to Walmart, you can buy you a soda for a buck, buck and a buck and a quarter now. But boy, you go to SDC or or Disney or something like that, you better have a ten dollar bill handy because you're going to be paying out the nose for it. That's what they were doing. They were making it. It was a convenience thing. But it, 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 it became extortion through religious means. They were taking advantage of people who were there to worship God. And all this, and what made it worse is that all this was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And that's what made Jesus so upset. Can you imagine trying to focus? Now, when I, when I try to pray, I get distracted easily. Does anybody else do that? I mean, I go to pray, and Jesse will open the door. Scarlett will have the TV up too loud. I mean, it doesn't matter. It, it can, the ha I could be the only one in the house, and I get distracted. Can you imagine trying to go and pray, and you've got all this stuff going on? You have sheep bleeding. 
auction lowing. You've got people shouting and haggling over prices. And you, you have all the smells that go along with the farm animals. It'd be like trying to have a prayer meeting in a Middle Eastern bazaar with all that commotion. Now, having animals there would have been fine at the stockyard, but not the courtyard. But that's where they were having it. They were having it right there at the temple. And so Jesus drove these people out because he was zealous for God's glory. He didn't want anything to distract these people from focusing on God. He is zealous for God's glory. Therefore, we need to treat God's house correctly. We, we need to, we need to uh, uh, one way we can do that is, is by coming to God's house for the right reasons. You know, there are a lot of reasons people go to church. Some of them are good. Some of them are not so good. Some people go out of a sense of obligation. Some people go so they don't get hassled. You know, I've, I've, I've seen one of those things, you know, when I was a kid I had a drug problem. I was drugged to church on Wednesday, drugged to church on Sunday, stuff like that. Now, I, I enjoy going to my church, but, you know, some people, some people don't. Some people, they just feel like that's what they're supposed to do. That's what they're expected to do. That's what they're raised to do. And so when they come... They're here in body, but they're not here in spirit. Did you know that I can I can usually tell how much you're paying attention to me just by just by looking at you? Not always, but sometimes when you're going and you're staring off into space, I have a pretty good idea you're not trying to see through the ceiling to see to God. You're I mean you're just out in your own little world thinking about fishing, hunting, uh, you know, basketball, football, whatever it is. We're here in body, but we're not here in spirit. Some people go. So people don't hassle them. Well, if I don't go, my husband, my wife, they're going to give me all kinds of grief. Oh, it's not even worth it. I'm just going to go get them off my back. Sometimes we go to the preacher doesn't call us and say, Hey, missing you. Sometimes we, we go so our friends don't say, Hey, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. Where have you been? We, we, we missed you at church. They don't want to explain themselves. Some people go because church for them is a social club, like a country club. They go to see their friends, talk a little bit, and then go home. All that's wrong. We should be coming to church in order to lift up, to magnify, to exalt, to praise, to worship God. We should come for God not because it's about Him, not about us to begin with. So come to, come to, come to church for the right reason. But another way we can treat God's house correctly is by not using it as a money-making tool. And that's, that's more to the point of what is in our text today, isn't it? Now, I don't think anybody here probably uses the church as a money-making tool, but I tell you, it happens. I know of a church, and I, I don't know if it's a fact, but I, it was told to me as a fact, so I'll just, you know, you believe it if you want to or not, doesn't matter to me. But I've been told that there's a, a large church, and it's not out of their own possibility, but there are people that go to that church for business purposes. They'll go to that church because... If, if they're in the middle of a sale and it, it helps them, they can say, I go to that church down the road and with a certain clientele, that'll help them. Listen, if you're going to church to network, if you're going to church uh, to make sales or to help you make sales, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You know, believers, uh, uh, unbelievers, oftentimes they see churches as kind of a, a scam. They see it as, as some kind of a racket that the churches have set up to fleece congregants and take their money. And that's a caricature, but unfortunately it actually happens sometimes. I, I read about a church this past week, I read about it, a church out in Seattle. It's a, a great big church. They have a very famous pastor. 
And he wrote a book. And the church, not the pastor, the church spent over $200,000 in a marketing scheme to get that pastor's book on the New York Times bestsellers list. Over $200,000 the church spent. The church is not a money-making tool. It is the house of God, not as, as Jesus said, not a house of merchandise, not a place of business. And then the third way, the last way that we can treat God's house correctly, and it's right there in the text, is by not hindering people from meeting God. Don't we, we, we must make a concerted effort not to hinder people from meeting God when they come to church. You say, well, how can you think that people won't meet God when they come to church? It's real easy. I've been in lots of churches where different things have happened. It's like, you know what? I, am, I, I don't ever want to come back here. If it wasn't rude, if I didn't have better, if I had worse manners, I'd get up and leave right now. You ever been in a place like that? Now, it's, it's obvious God wants all people to come to Him. It doesn't matter if they're black, white, gay, straight, American, uh, un-American, conservative, liberal, everybody. That's who, that's who Jesus died for. For God so loved the world. It doesn't say God so loved the American Baptists. God so loved the world. The church, God's house is there so people will come to know God. They can go there to get in a relationship with Him. And again, the focus is not on the building. The focus is on God. It's, it's on His glory. And when more and more people come to Him, more and more people can glorify Him. More and more people can know this glory of God. And really, when, when, when you look at the text, that's what this court of the Gentiles was for. For non-Jews to meet with God. But the people who were selling in the temple were hindering that from happening. People were coming trying to meet the Lord, and they couldn't. And we don't have any farm animals in here. I, I don't think I've ever seen... I've, I've, seen I've, I've seen a couple of critters in here, but none of them are farm animals. I won't tell you what they are, because some of you probably wouldn't come back. But you know what? We don't, we don't have any of those things, but we need to ask ourselves... Is there something, anything that we as a church are doing that would hinder people from following Christ? What am I talking about? Do, do we do anything as a church that would keep, quote-unquote, outsiders from becoming, quote-unquote, insiders? <coughs> when people come to church, um, do, they, do we come, come across as being cold? You know, the frozen chosen? Arrogant? Aloof, uh, cliquish, unfriendly, unwelcoming, unloving, insincere. I mean, it's a whole list of things. What, what turns you off to a place or a group of people? Do we do any of that? That's stuff that we need to be asking ourselves. Do people who don't look or sound like us feel welcome and loved? Because they should. It's God's house. It's God's people. I read recently about um, two lesbians who went to a church, and the only reason they went was to shock people. They wanted to have an excuse to hate a church. So they went, and they were, they were, they were trying to provoke people. You know, they would hold hands in church and all kinds of things. But to their surprise, people didn't hate them. They didn't despise them. Instead, they loved them. And time went on, and... And so they began to move closer to the front, thinking they would get more a reaction eventually 
The closer they got to the front, they would get a reaction. But it didn't happen. Through the course of time, those two ended up breaking up, but one of them kept going to that church because of the way she was treated. Eventually, she got saved. And now, she doesn't practice uh, that lifestyle anymore. She's involved in a ministry that helps people that has uh, sexual and relational problems. And you say, that is a great story of God's redemption. And it is. But you know what? That wouldn't have happened if that church would have treated them like a lot of churches treat people. Well, they're involved in sin. We, We love them, but we'll love them at a distance. That's not to say that they condone the sin, but they still loved them in the midst of that sin. Don't hinder people from coming to God. Don't 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 shut those people out. The last thing I see in our, our text is right there at the end, and that is that Jesus has the right to determine what happens at church. And that should be pretty obvious, right? But G- Jesus, when he went into the temple, and he was overturning tables, and again, we don't think of somebody, Jesus flinging over tables, having a whip in his hand. I don't know if he actually used it, but, you know, it says that some people say, well, he just used it on the farm animals. Or some people say he didn't. it was just a show of power or something like that. But when you look at it, in verse 15, it says, He made a scourge of cords, that's a whip, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He drowned the people out. And I don't, I don't think he was abusive. I mean, he, he didn't get overcome with, with anger or anything like that. It was righteous indignation. But listen, he came in and he... He ruffled some feathers. He rocked the boat. And they wanted to know, why are you doing... Who gave you the right to say what's happening in God's house? By what authority are you doing this? Now, back then, they believed that when the Messiah came, he could basically do in the temple what he wanted to because he was God's man. And they also believed that when the Messiah came, it would be accompanied by signs, wonders, by miracles. And so Jesus comes in. He's basically claiming to be the Messiah and taking charge, having authority over the, over the temple. And so they say, give us a sign to, to show that you're the Messiah. And what does Jesus do? Look again at, at verse, uh, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And I think he's probably pointing to himself when he, when he said, destroy this temple. You know what I'm saying? This temple. Because actually, and this is maybe kind of an aside, but the word temple that he uses is different from the one that they're using. Because temple, the word that's rendered temple up until this point, just means the temple. But the word that he used was sanctuary, where God is dwelling, habitation. He's saying, you, you destroy this temple, God's dwelling place, my body. In three days, I'll, I'll raise it back up. And then they pick up his language after he says that. He's pointing ahead to the resurrection. That's what he did all through the ministry. They would say, give us a sign. He said, you only get no sign except for the sign of Jonah, resurrection. What was he saying? He said that whenever I rise from the dead, it's going to show beyond a shadow of a doubt I had authority to do this because it's going to prove that I'm the Son of God. It's going to prove that I'm the Messiah. And what was true then is true now. Jesus has a right to tell us what to do in God's house. We need, we need to treat God's house differently than we do other places. We need to treat it in a special way. And again, it's not because the building is, is special. We could have church, well, probably not today in, in this weather, but we could have church outside. 
It's not the building. It's God's glory that we are meeting together to, to, to revel in, to exalt. It's, Jesus is zealous for God's glory, and therefore He's zealous for the place where people are honoring that glory. We need to come to church for the right reasons. Why, why is it that you're coming? Why did you come today? Do you have a drug problem today? You got drugged to church? Drug yourself out of bed? You didn't want to come, but you didn't want to get hassled? You knew that, you know, that's the way you were raised? You knew it had been a while, so you figured, well, I better go make my appearance so nobody gets on my case. Why, why, why are we coming? It, it, the church isn't a money-making tool. And, and, and especially something that we need to, to focus on. And A while back we, we talked as a church about our strengths and our weaknesses. And one of the things we have to focus on is not being a hindrance to people coming to Christ. Because we can do that easily. Like Jesus, we need to be zealous for the glory of God in all things, and especially in this church. Why don't you stand with me as the musician comes. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. How do you treat God's house? Is it just another place that you go? Is it kind of on par with the store, your home? Just another thing that you do, another obligation you have for the week. Are you coming for the right reason? Are you realizing the church isn't about you? It's not about me. It's not about our preferences. It's about God. It's about glorifying Him, about exalting Him, about praising Him. It's about seeing other people come to know Him. That's what church is about. It's not for us, it's for them. It's for Him. Somebody as well said that the church is not a hotel for the saints, but a hospital for the sinners. We're all sinners, each and every one of us. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, and that's what the gospel is. In the midst of our sin, Jesus died for us. When we didn't deserve it, he still died for us. Friend, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior today, it's the day you need to do that. Repent of your sin. If you're a Christian that's not living right, change your ways. Repent of your sin. Not get saved again, but get right again.